0: Hey guys, how are we doing? It's really weird. It gets really dark and then it gets really light like some suspense thing is going on. I, I, I hope you guys are um, glad to be worshiping with us this morning. Take your Bibles. Turn to Matthew 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's ushers coming down the rows. Just raise your hand. Look at a Bible into your hands. If you um, don't have a Bible of your own, please take this as a gift. If you've got 20 of them at home, bring them back. Okay? So, um, But we are going to be in God's Word. I want a copy of God's Word in front of you. Um, Is there anything better than summer in Western Michigan to get up this morning before 7 o'clock? Now, you guys didn't do that because you're at the 11 o'clock, all you people that sleep in. But to get up before 7 o'clock, go outside, and it's already sticky humid. Is that like the best? And if you're like, no, I can't stand it. I wish it were colder. You get nine months. Let us enjoy uh, these three months. And um, how many people are gonna be out somewhere near water this afternoon? Okay, fantastic. So before you get there, we're gonna take just a few minutes. We're gonna be in the Sermon on the Mount. This was our 11th week studying this sermon. We've got two to go. We will be in the Sermon on the Mount for 13 weeks, which raises a wonderful question. Why would you spend 13 weeks studying something that Jesus taught in one afternoon? And there's two answers to that. First of all, um, Jesus taught for a really long time. And if you guys want, we can keep going today. Um, we can cancel our afternoon plans, right? I can't do the loaves and fishes thing, but we can order from Jimmy John's it's Sneaky Fast. And we can just stay, and we can just bang out the rest of this chapter. Are you guys up for that? You are not. You liars. And uh, so, so he spoke longer than we did. We get you for smaller segments. And then the second thing that I would say, uh, Jesus is smarter than us. Can we just agree with that? And uh, sometimes we got to slow down to figure out what he's saying. Because if we're not careful, we're going to miss it. This is especially true in this passage. Because as we go into chapter 7, we're going to look at four phrases that if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard these phrases quite often. They're almost cliches at this point. But you'll see right in verse 1 it says, Judge not, that you not be judged. Verse 6, Don't throw your pearls before pigs. Verse 3, ask and it will be given to you. And then the golden rule in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. If we are not careful, if we take one of these phrases and take it out of the context in what Jesus is um, teaching, we can uh, get into some landmines and get into some really poor teaching. One of the reasons that we take time to go through a passage and teach it verse by verse is so that we don't take some of these things way out of context. So, Just to give uh, those of you who don't remember or who are visiting a little bit of context of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. We're at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He has just started preaching Not in Jerusalem, but he's up in Galilee in the northern part of Israel. And he is around the Sea of Galilee and he is preaching a very simple message. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. No parables, no um, illustrations. He's just preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as he goes from town to town, he's doing miracles, which is attracting a lot of people because people are getting healed and they're seeing amazing things. So you can imagine if that was going on in our area, there'd be a lot of people that would be looking to follow a man who could perform miracles and taught with an authority they hadn't seen before. So this afternoon, as he gives this message, he's gathered on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and uh, he's got a lot of people with him. And Jesus starts to unpack that everybody who follows Jesus is not a follower of Jesus. And this message, in, a, in some ways, it serves as an X-ray or a uh, MRI on what's going on inside our hearts. Now, Now, I've been fortunate I've never had to have an MRI. Who, who here has had an MRI? Okay, so I, I gotta imagine, like I think I'd be okay with the MRI, like the procedure doesn't scare me. Going into that little tubey thing would kinda, I'd get claustrophobic. Does anybody feel that way when they get an MRI? So, so there's something about when you're getting examined that can make you feel uncomfortable, and I believe that through this message, Jesus is trying to make us feel uncomfortable. He's saying, listen, examine your hearts. And he starts his message by describing what uh, a true follower of Jesus Christ is. It's not somebody that just gathers to hear him speak. It's somebody that's broken in spirit. It says, blessed are those who are broken in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And someone who understands their sin and their need for a savior. And then it goes on to say, someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Is that you? And then he starts to talk about the idea that the followers of Jesus live different than the rest of the world. They live as salt and light. There is something about the way that they live that is distinctive and different from the world. And then he says, listen, in order to be saved, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in verse 48 of chapter 5, he says, you got to be perfect. And that should bring terror into our lives. And it should show us our desperate need, not that we can be perfect or that the law can save, but we need somebody to save us and to deal with the issue of sin that separates us from who God is. And then in chapter six, the examination continues. He's like, how's your prayer life? Like, do you really think that you've got this whole thing under control or do you need to realize that you have to surrender, that you need to be dependent on God? He says, "What is your heart? Is it earthly treasures? Are you pursuing the things of this world? It was interesting. Just as I was getting ready to go into the 11 o'clock service, I was talking to a guy in the lobby, and one of my other pastors was like, you got to get in there. you got to get in there. And, um, but it was interesting. His story was one. He's a younger guy, but it was of a lot of success getting everything that he thought would make him happy early in life. But the reality is when he had everything that he had thought would make him happy, he was completely miserable. And that's how God reached him. And there are many in this room who have set um, their hearts on earthly treasures. And Jesus is saying, hey, you need to treasure the things of the kingdom of God. And then last week, um, a difficult message to preach, probably a difficult message if you were here for some of you to hear. How are you doing on your uh, anxiety and your fear level? And are you consumed by worry? And so this has been a heart exam, not just what a follower of Christ looks like, but how he interacts and lives in a broken world, and that MRI continues this week. One of the themes throughout this entire message is this, are you more concerned about perceptions and how you appear to be? Are you concerned about who you truly are? The big idea this morning is this, our greatest limitation is our lack of desperation. Our greatest limitation is our lack of desperation, and when we fail to be desperate, we get what we ask for. And so I'm going to be bouncing between two words most of the morning. The two key words this morning are this word discernment and desperation. And as followers of Jesus Christ, you're going to see in this passage, we have to be able to discern. It's not always easy to figure out how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ in a broken world. So we desperately need discernment, but we're never going to have proper discernment until we get to the point that we are desperate. Desperate. To see God move in our lives. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's jump into chapter 7 verse 1. Here's the first point under discern. Who's the judge? It says this in verse 7. Judge not that you be not judged. So I got to take a moment. Even before I get too far into this. What Jesus is going to do. He lays, he lays a command. Judge you not. And then he gives you the reasons. For why we shouldn't be judgmental. But the problem is we better have a pretty clear understanding about what the word judge means before we get too far into this, because words have different meanings depending on how they're used in context. So the idea of judge could be to evaluate. We all make judgment calls, right? And so we've got to make some determinations, and we've got to formulate some convictions. And in some context, judging means to evaluate. And uh, how many of you have said, well... You know, you've been talking to somebody and said, well, um, I believe this. And they are like, well, I don't. Don't judge me. Has anybody got that response? And sometimes the world responds to Christians and says, you're not supposed to judge. And in the area of personal convictions and personal lifestyles, man, you want to step in it in our country. Start speaking in to how somebody lives that is different than how you live. That's going to get you in trouble so fast. Some countries um, tend to, or some cultures tend to be all about love, and they neglect truth. And then there's been other cultures that are really big on truth, but they're not really great on love. When I look at the American culture, I just think we're both at the same time. It's a little weird. We're schizophrenic. And so I can't speak in. Like, who are you the right to judge me? You get that a lot. And how are you... able to say that this is wrong and it might be wrong for you but it's not wrong for me and truth is relative and don't step on my personal freedoms and the way that I choose to live like you feel that strong in our culture but here's the weird thing we got the exact opposite thing going on at the at the same time talk about politics so I'm in downtown Grand Haven uh, this afternoon and I pull out my uh, I voted for Trump which I don't have that t-shirt but if I did I wear my I voted for Trump t-shirt into a restaurant downtown. Think I'm going to get a response? <laughs> so what are the odds somebody's going to spit in my food? Like like probably pretty good behind, you know. Or if I wear a I voted for Hillary t-shirt, I don't have one of those either. And I go, I voted for Hillary. Like somebody's spitting in my food no matter which side I pick, right? But they're going to feel the freedom to respond to what I say, but I can't speak into personal feelings, but I can speak into political beliefs. It's a little weird. We don't know when to duck or when to jab in our culture because in some cases and in social media, people will respond in social media and say things over the internet that they would never say over the phone or to somebody in person The idea of not being able to make an evaluation, to not be formed convictions, I don't believe that Jesus, be- is that's his use of the word judge here, and here's why I believe that. It's impossible to live that way. Look down five verses. Look at verse 6 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus is making a value judgment. He's actually referring to some people as dogs and pigs. So it's impossible to go, don't judge, you dog. Like, that doesn't make sense. That contradicts itself. If you go down a few more verses to verse 15, it says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How in the world can we apply that teaching to beware of false prophets if we're not able to make some evaluation that what they're teaching is not true? So, just understand, we get ourselves in a box, as Christians, that the world is saying, you're not allowed to make an evaluation of what's right and wrong for me, and they apply judge, and they say, you're not allowed to do that. That's not Jesus' intent. There's another meaning for judge that I think is closer to what Jesus is trying to teach in the text, and that is when we judge, it is to pronounce verdict, to dismiss, to punish, to basically say I'm done with you and when Jesus uses this word in verse 7-1 and he says judge not I think he's much more concerned and you're going to see this develop not that we make an evaluation but that we make a determination about someone else we determine like I'm done with you but I'm okay and he's very worried about a self-righteousness and a judgmental critical attitude that dismisses people and pronounces kind of a finality of judgment. It's not bad to evaluate. It's not bad to be able to say, hey, listen, I think there's an error in the way that you're approaching this. But when you do that, is your heart to harm or is it to help? Is it to edify? It speaks to motive. So some reasons why we're not to judge. Look at verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In essence, what this verse is applying is if we want God to show us mercy, if we want him to show us grace and forgiveness in our lives, we better be quick to offer mercy, forgiveness, and grace to others. James 2, 12 through 13 says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're in a court of law and you're standing before a judge and you are guilty you are like you're fired up about liberty and mercy would you agree and he's saying don't forget who you were and where you came from because that same standard will be applied to you here's the second thing sin distorts our vision why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye okay how many of you have been in a conversation with, with a friend, or maybe another follower of Jesus Christ, and you say, hey, listen, I've got some real concern for you, and they immediately fire out, you got concerned for me, i got concern for you for the same thing. Like, get the log out of your own eye. And so what happens is, you run into a couple of those, and all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm not going to be critical of anything, I don't, I don't care, I'm not even going to say anything. That's not the intent of what Jesus is saying. One of the things that you need to understand in this analogy is, we all have something in our eye. And what looks like a speck in your eye If that same speck was in my eye, it would look like a log. It's a matter of perspective. And Jesus isn't saying, don't speak into your brother who has an issue or, or, or something that you're concerned about. Just be sure that if you're going to do that, you've given other people permission to speak into your life. He doesn't use the word twig. He doesn't use the word branch or stick. It's a log. And he's saying, be careful Um, It is not going to be received well by other people if you're constantly speaking into areas of their lives, but you haven't given people the permission to speak into your own life. We talk about this a lot. One of the reasons that we have small groups is in a small group, you're granting the the men or women in your group to speak into areas that they see in your life, and that is important. I had dinner with a guy last night, and uh, his wife looked across, just ambushed her husband. It was awesome. She knew she was sitting with a pastor. They didn't normally attend our church, but they're in another church with small groups. And she says, so David, tell my husband what you think about small groups and why it's important. And I look at the guy, he's a retired cop. And he's like, she just hung me. And, um, and I'm like, well, here's what I would tell you. The reason it's important is you need somebody speaking into your life. Somebody has to have the permission because otherwise you're going to go around with blind spots we don't see clearly sin distorts our vision here's another thing our approach speaks to our motive look at verse 4 or how can you say to your brother let me take a speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye you hypocrite see that's the definition of a hypocrite to see every fault and failure in someone else but not to acknowledge that there's things in your own life that are not okay first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye okay I think it's easier to see faults in other people than it is our own, right? And so he's saying, rather than focus on someone else, first look at yourself. And I don't think that it is, um, I think Jesus had a purpose in using the eye as the example, okay? How how many of you like getting stuff in your eyes? Is there any more thing more irritating than that? I always get eyelashes in my eyes. I don't know how that happens. And it drives me crazy. Now, a couple other things. I don't even like going to the eye doctor. Because when I go to the eye doctor, my eye doctor gets about this close to my face and starts talking to me, and I got the personal space thing going on. Like, I don't even want to deal with that. But the idea of somebody else touching my eye, I wear glasses sometimes when I can find them, but I never wear contacts because I don't like touching my own eyeballs. Anybody else like that? I I just don't like it. Okay, so if I'm sensitive to touching my own eye, how do you think I feel about somebody else touching my eye. So like when I got an eyelash in my eye, I'm not really fired up about somebody reaching in there and if they're going to, I want them to be really careful and have a really soft touch and be really sensitive about it. So let me illustrate this to you. Zero, come on up here. You sat in the front row, you earned it, man. You you knew better, okay? So you sit in the front row, you're free game. So this is Zero, I got that right, right? So let's assume for a minute that you got an eyelash stuck in your eye. And so I come up all in your oh. personal grill. <laughs> yeah, I so see, like, like, already, you're like, whoa, man, give me some space. Okay, so you got it. I'm like, okay, so look up. Okay, uh, so I'm looking, it. like, here, okay? okay? I'm like, you know what, I think I can get that. Let me get that for you right away. I brought these. <laughs> Seriously, they're long-nosed. Uh, like, like are, you, are you cool with that? No, uh, probably something a little bit more. Like, what would you like me to use other than... Maybe something with some soft ends. Some you know soft ends, thinking? like maybe like a Q-tip yeah, or like a tissue, those, that would be that better. Would be Probably what you Grinch would... put. Per- it out or something. Okay, something like, like, so you want me to be pretty tender yes. as I go towards your eye, because it's pretty sensitive, right? Yes, sir. So this ain't gonna do it. No. Okay, yes. that's all I need to know. Okay, so, so thank you. That, that's the illustration that he's making when we approach somebody else with our faults. Like, don't be coming in with some drill. And drilling down on a guy, particularly if you haven't given permission for someone to speak. Sin distorts our vision. The way that we approach speaks to motive. That's three from the text. Can I give you two freebies? They're not in the text, but let me just mention these. Stay in your lane. As it relates to judgment, stay in your lane. Often as a pastor here, somebody will ask me, hey, so what do you think about what's going on at this church? Or what do you think about this pastor? Or did you hear about what's going on here? I'm learning, and hopefully I've practiced this. It, it's very hard for you guys to come up to me and say, hey, I heard you speaking negatively about another pastor. I just avoid that. If you're going to talk to me, hey, what's going on at this church? I'm going to say, I think they love the Lord. I think he's preaching the word. I think he's doing his best. And we might disagree in flavor or some little things about how the gospel is proclaimed. But, but man, I've learned, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not accountable for that ministry. So I don't want to speak poorly of another pastor in our community does that make sense I think the weight of having to account for you all is enough for me I don't think I got to reach out and give a lot of judgment on what's going on in other churches and I would just tell you stay in your lane can I make this really practical for you if you're the guy writing in the comment section of the Grand Haven Tribune stop it You don't have to voice your opinion on stuff that has nothing to do with you. Don't judge. Stay in your lane. And then here's another one, don't date stamp. Do you know what I mean by date stamp and and expiration dates? I was at the Vertical Men's Rally a couple weeks ago. One of the guys staying in my cabin is, is a local doctor. And he had a headache, he's like, hey, can I have some Excedrin? I'm like, sure, I threw him a little bottle of Excedrin that I've been carrying around with me when I travel and he threw it back to me and he's like, no thanks. And I'm like, why? He goes, it expired. I'm not taking that. I go, it's aspirin. I'm like, are you kidding me? He goes, it expired in 2015. There's nothing active in that pill anymore. I went, okay, okay, picky doctor is what I was thinking. I didn't say that. So then I come to Sunday and I'm like, man, your, your husband, he won't even take like drugs after prescription. Like, that's a little crazy. He goes, yeah, but he drinks the milk a week after it expired. Like, like that ain't right. And so in our house, this is a constant debate. My wife thinks the expiration date is the sell-by date. I think the expiration date says that the date before that date is the last date that you would ever drink that. I'm not a gambler. I don't take risks, OK? <laughs> so, so, but you understand that we can date stamp people. We can date stamp people. And, and it's interesting. I, I know someone at our church who People have come to me and said, listen, I started attending your church because I saw the transformation that took place in their life and I couldn't believe how their life changed when God got a hold of them and I needed the same thing so I started attending Harvest. I've heard that story. And about the same person, I've heard somebody else say, I'd never come to your church, that person goes there. And I know what that person's like. It's dangerous to date stamp someone. And by the way, it um, shows a lack of trust that God has the ability to transform hearts and lives over long seasons. So just be very careful on this idea of don't judge. Let me move to the next thing. Verse six, is God working? Some of the things I'm about to say are gonna sound like I just contradicted what I just said. That's why we need discernment. Verse seven, or verse six, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Don't throw what's holy to dogs. Pearls. Not not rocks or stones. Something of value. Pearls before pigs. It's interesting there's two parables in the book of Matthew where a pearl is used. It's this one verse in Matthew 7 and there's two verses in Matthew 13. It says in Matthew 13, 45 again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So in Matthew 13, when he uses the analogy of pearls, he's talking about the pearl represents the kingdom of God. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And when the guy got that, anything else in his life that had value became worthless as it related to the kingdom. And I believe as he uses the analogy in Matthew 7:6 again, when he talks about holy before dogs or pearls before pigs, he's talking about kingdom things, the gospel. And what he's saying here is, have some discernment about how you approach somebody in need of the gospel. Now, let me unpack this for you for a minute. I might be wrong. I don't remember. But I don't believe in the eight years that we've had a church that I've ever ran an evangelism class, how to evangelize. I'm not, I'm not against it. Maybe we'll do that in the future. Maybe that would be helpful helping you understand how to take your story and explain that to someone else. But I know I've never ran anybody through Romans Road. I'm not against it. I've never had an evangelism explosion class. And yet the church has continued to grow. Isn't that crazy? In the first 300 years of the early church, you can't find a sermon, a pamphlet, a book, or a paper on how to evangelize the lost. And yet the church continued to grow and spread across the world in the face of strong hostility. How can that be? Well, because what makes a big impression in people's life is not what you say, it's how you live. And what we hear over and over is somebody lives differently than the world. A neighbor, a friend, a family member sees that and they see the change. They see the transformation and it leads them to ask questions about the gospel. We're told in 1 Peter 3, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Hear this. Always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So often the gospel spreads because somebody sees you living to a different set of values or, or walking, to use a cliche, to the beat of a different drummer. And they say there's something different about that person. They have a hope, they have a joy, and I don't have it and I want it. And, and see, this is how the follower of Jesus Christ lives. He's salt and he's light. But we need discernment in how we share the gospel. And I'm going to say something to parents. This is going to be difficult for some of you to hear. But I know that um, some of you have kids whose walk with the Lord is non-existent or isn't where you'd want it to be. And I know that that um, deeply troubles you. And you're praying for that son and daughter and you want to see God get a hold of their lives and um, I'm not against persistent prayer please don't hear me to say that but you need to understand that sometimes when you communicate with your kids and all you do is you need the Lord and you know you've chosen a sinful lifestyle and you're just pounding that hammer all the time sometimes your kid's heart is not ready to receive that And all you're doing is creating an animosity and a hatred towards the things of God because you're using it as a hammer rather than displaying the difference in your life. Consider that. And I know what I'm saying is difficult. When I started pastoring here, I negotiated with God before I took the job. I wanted better terms. And uh, I said, listen, I'm willing to preach and I'm willing to lead and I'll give my life to this. Just don't make me counsel. I don't want to counsel I don't want to sit in a room and hear people spill out their problems. That's, I'm going to get annoyed. It's going to happen, Lord. You don't want me there. <laughs> and um, then I'm like, okay, I, I'll crisis counsel. Like If i got to meet with somebody one or two times, I'll do that. But just don't make me sit in a room with 12 times hearing a guy tell me how depressed he is. I'll get depressed. And um, it's funny, now I love counseling, but that's a whole nother story. But the first people that came to our church that needed counseling before we even launched as a church... They came, they met in our office, they got saved at international aid, and uh, I said, Lord, I'm going to counsel this guy how long as it takes, because I want to lay down the fact that I don't want to do this. (laughs) I met with him 42 times. I kept count. 42 times. My staff was like, why are you meeting with him? Because he called, and I'm stubborn. And I think God has a Cruel sense of humor. And as long as this guy calls, I've committed to answer and I'm not going to give up and I'm going to keep meeting with him over and over and over again. Here's the truth I think I quit truly caring about him, about meeting 12. I just kept going 30 more because I was stubborn. And the truth is, as I look back, he wasn't ready to receive the gospel. He was just there to gripe about his life and his wife and his circumstances. And I just hung in there and kept going and I was so focused on him. And my kids kept saying, hey, or my kids, that's kind of true, Cal and Chris said, hey, there's other people that need your attention. And I was so focused on the one thing that I was missing other people that were coming into my life. Now on the other extreme of that, I've met with other guys that walk into my life. I remember one in particular who um, had left his wife and left his kids and he was seeing a girlfriend and he came into my office and he was saying, I know what I'm doing is wrong but you don't understand how terrible my wife is to live with and if you understood what she was to live with that would help explain why I chose to do what I did. And I remember in that context being like, go chase that other girl. With all your might, because you're not listening to me. And you're going to get to the dead end of that thing. And we'll see how that looks in 10 years. And why don't we come talk then? And I'll still be here. or Somebody's going to still be here. Because you're in no position to. And I was so dismissive. Well, how do you know when to be dismissive and not to be dismissive? Because the truth is, sometimes I've seen God work in hearts and completely transformed life where I didn't even expect it. Like, like, how do you discern that? If you follow Jesus' ministry... Sometimes you see him with great patience talk and discuss and reach out to sinners. And at other times, he's completely dismissive of the people that approach him. When Jesus was on trial at the end of his life, he stood before Pilate. And Pilate is like, so are you the son of God? And he continues to converse with Pilate. But then Pilate, because of a jurisdiction question, throws him over to Herod. And when he stands before Herod, it says in Luke 23, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad For he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, hear this, and Herod was hoping to see some sign done by Jesus. So Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Why didn't Jesus answer Herod? Because Herod had no interest in the things of the gospel. He just wanted to see a miracle or a party trick. And Jesus said, I'm not there and there are times, my fear is, that we're so focused on our family member and the person that we care so much about that we're missing the opportunity to share the gospel with a myriad of other people that God's parading right in front of us. We call this red apple evangelism. Look for somebody who is ripe to the gospel, who, who life has brought to the position where they're willing to receive the gospel. Don't just focus on who you want to see God move in. Focus on who's ready to receive the gospel. Does that make sense? Can I ask you a question? How difficult is that to discern? Like I struggle with this on a weekly basis. When do I show a lot of grace and continue a conversation? And when do I drop the hammer and get to truth in a crisis point? Like I wrestle with this. Which brings us to the third point of the message. I need help. I need help. Look at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Verse 8, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You take this verse out of context, you're going to get yourself in a world of trouble. This is not Jesus promising that anything you ask for, any request you make in prayer, he's going to be answered. And don't be fooled, some guys sell that. It's called the prosperity gospel. Preachers around our country this morning are standing up and they're saying, all you got to do is ask God. And he's going to give you whatever you want. God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, happy. And all you got to do is have enough faith to ask. And he's going to grant it. And much harm has been done to the gospel by these guys who fly around in their private jets and say, see, I asked. God gave. Proof that that's True. Okay, a couple problems with that. Sell that to the person who is struggling with terminal cancer. And not only are they now dealing with the burden of their health issues, but you've convinced them that they don't have enough faith, otherwise they'd be healed. Put that on them too. I don't see a lot of mercy in that. And the second thing is, in context. Yeah, Jesus said, ask and you will receive, but he said it in the midst of a lot of other stuff. And what he's been saying throughout this entire message is, seek my kingdom first. Be desperate to see me move, my kingdom move in your heart and the people in, the, in your life and in your community. And when you seek first my kingdom, like he just taught us a chapter ago how to pray. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that way, looking for the kingdom of God, I think we're going to be surprised at how God answers that prayer. This is not God being a genie, granting you your wish. He goes on and he says in Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In our passage, in 7, verse 9, it says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Listen, prayer is not about you receiving what you want. Prayer is about you getting your heart in line to what God wants. And when we are desperate to see God work... He promises to answer that prayer. i got to tell you, this week we were at a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Our church gathered to worship and pray. And I was convicted. Because I remember when our church was little and we met at the Trillium and there were just a, a hundred people or so there. And I was desperate to see God move. Fast forward eight years, we got a couple buildings, we got a bunch of people, we got a bunch of staff. And as I sat there that night and asked God to fill this place, I asked myself the question, am I as desperate to see God move as I used to be? Or have I grown complacent? And I think sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because we lack the desperation that he calls us to pray with. And I think other times we're praying for what we want rather than what God would want. So, so here's a question. Can anybody remember in the room a time in your past where you prayed earnestly for something that you really wanted? And then some time passed, and you look back on that request and you're like, oh man, I'm so glad God didn't answer that prayer. Anybody had that experience happen to them? Oh yeah, so growing up in high school, uh, my wife Kristen, she was here last night and in the nine o'clock, she's not here now, so I'm going to tell this story with way more liberty. Um, (laughs) She was dating a guy by the name of Danny. Danny was my best friend, which was complicated because I had a crush on Kristen too, but When your best friend's dating or you guys understand the politics of that whole thing right so i've got to sit with danny telling me man i'm praying to god that this is the woman like this is going to be my wife i'm so glad god didn't answer that prayer because danny was a a nice guy and i actually think my wife would have probably been pretty happy with danny he's a good guy but i would have been miserable and so I'm so happy that God doesn't answer every desire on our hearts because at some point you've got to be really thankful for unanswered prayer, right? God sometimes doesn't give us just our wishes, but here's the really good thing about God God never gives us what we think will make us in, happy in the moment, only to disappoint and hurt us in the end. See, that's what sin does. We're tempted to sin because we believe it'll make us happy in the moment, but always when we choose to sin, long term we choose to suffer, right? God's never like that. He's a heavenly father. He knows better than we do what's best for us, and he never gives us what is good in the moment, but will be harmful in the future. Okay, here's a last thing. Here's a practical test. Look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law in the prophets. In the Old Testament, and, and be careful. I always want to be careful. When I talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, those aren't two different books with two different emphasis. The Old Testament uh, reveals the character of God, and it gives us the law and the prophets. When Jesus says law and the prophets, he's re- referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament points out is our desperate need for a savior because we can't keep the law. And in the Old Testament, you were saved by faith, just like we are, anticipating the promise that God would send a Messiah who would someday conquer sin and pay the penalty on our behalf. In the New Testament, we have the story of that promise fulfilled. Jesus Christ came, he died, and he was resurrected. And as today we sit here, we look back on the Old Testament and the New Testament telling a united story, our desperate need for a Savior because we couldn't keep the law because we're sinners, and the miraculous provision of God in giving his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin but in the old testament you had 613 commands 613 laws 365 of them were negative thou shalt not murder thou shalt not steal thou shalt not lie and then you had 248 positives thou shall and then thou shalt a bunch of those so jesus does us a huge favor in matthew 7:12 he says All of those laws, those 613 laws that you had to keep in the Old Testament, let me consolidate it down to one overriding principle because it's going to get to motive. Treat other people as you would like to be treated by others. That's the heart of the law. Get rid of the self-focus. Consider how other people would like to be treated and treat them that way. In doing so, you're going to, because your motive is there, be able to fulfill much of the Old Testament law. That had to drive the Pharisees nuts that were in attendance. They'd spent their entire career memorizing the 613 laws, giving commentary, adding new laws, giving interpretations to the laws, and then judging everybody else by whether they kept the laws, their additional laws, and their interpretation of the laws. Like in one moment, verse 7, 12, Pharisees out of business. Jesus is saying it's not just about what you do it's about the motive and your heart see this is an MRI of our hearts are we really a follower of Jesus Christ so as I consider how do I want to be treated is that how I treat others here's how I want to be treated here's what I want I want the benefit of the doubt how about you I'm tired of people impugning motive on the stupid things that I do like, like, give me a little bit of grace. How many of you have been cursed with a logical mind? So, so you look at somebody and they do something stupid and you go, well, if they did that, then they must be thinking this. And if they think this, they're probably also thinking this. And all of a sudden, you've piled on the offenses way beyond what they actually did. Anybody fall into that trap? Like, I'm tired of that. I want the benefit of the doubt. But sometimes we're really slow at giving the benefit of the doubt, Right? I want people in my life who love me and speak into the areas in my life that are causing me harm and are stealing my joy that I can't see. I want people to see the speck in my eyes, but I don't want them coming at me with needlenose pliers. I want them there for my good, to do it gently because they love me. And what Jesus is saying is, he's saying this golden rule, as it's been known, hey, listen, check your heart again. Are you desperate for God? And again, I believe our biggest limitation is our lack of desperation. I think God's great at a lot of things. I think he's got wonderful attributes. I think he's just, I think he's holy, I think he's righteous. So many things I could mention. I think he's a lousy negotiator. I don't think God's in the business of negotiating with us, do you? Like, you want a little bit of God to solve your problems? Then give me a little bit of you. You think that's how God works and operates up in heaven? I don't think God's a great negotiator. So, This week on Monday, after last Sunday, um, we had a sleepover at our house with six of our grandkids. They all slept over at the house. And then on Monday morning, our other two grandkids, we have eight grandkids, they also came over. So all eight grandkids over on Monday. Monday was a wonderful day. We're all playing in the yard. This hasn't happened very often that I get all eight at once. And so, and just enjoying the moment. We're playing with them in the yard. And Cal's youngest, or oldest son, Bo, he's four. I'm just pitching him a little foam ball. He's trying to hit it with a foam bat. And and he's struggling a little bit. It wasn't a fat bat. It was just a smaller bat. So I'm trying to pitch him. And, you know, we're just having a good time. And right as I throw him a pitch, my six-year-old granddaughter comes up and goes, I want a turn. And Bo hit kind of a little dribbler. And I could tell he was getting frustrated because he wasn't hitting it better. I said, okay, hon, um, I'll give you a turn. Bo's going to take a turn and then you can have a turn. But he just had a turn. I know, but you asked him after he was already swinging, so let me give him a turn, then you can have a turn. So I could tell she was ticked, like, like, just like she was processing this. And so he takes his next turn, and then she gets her at bat, and then she goes, I get two turns. And I go, no, we're back and forth. We're each going to take one turn. And I had set it up so after you hit, there was only one base in the yard. It was directly behind the plate. I just put a bucket out there. So they'd run back and forth to the bases and try to be safe. So if you ever get my kids later on in youth baseball and they run directly to second base, that's on me. I, I own that, okay? And um, she's like, but he had two turns. I get two turns. And I said, no, we're just taking one turns. Yeah, but he had two tries and I only get one try. So I'm like, okay, let me put this on a timeline for you. I'm trying to rational you know, rationalize with my five-year-old granddaughter. He was swinging when you asked him, which is probably why he didn't hit it well. So I gave him another turn, then I gave you a turn, and now it's going to be his turn. You're not getting two turns. She goes, then I'm not playing. And she goes, and she sits on the steps. And I'm like, fine, your choice. So I continue to pitch to Bo, and I pitch him one, and I pitch him two, and I'm kind of looking at her. I want to see if she's crying. She's not crying. She's ticked. And uh, I pitch him a third time. And I go, Emma, do you want to play? And she said, Yeah. I said, I said, okay, come on, come on and play. And she walks past the plate. She walks right to the mound, and she goes, But I don't think it was fair that he got two turns, <laughs> and I only got one turn. And I looked at her, and I'm like, hon. While you were sitting there stewing about only getting one turn when he got two, you missed three more turns. (laughs) And it's your turn right now. Do you want to take a turn or do you want to go back and sit over there and stew on it? Fast forward five minutes, She's, she's hitting the ball way better than Bo. She's in her glory. She's so happy. She's forgotten about the whole thing. But I think sometimes that's how we approach God, isn't it? We negotiate with God. God, we want to see you move. We want to see some transformation in our lives. We need you to show up in a big way, so we're going to give you a little piece and see how you respond. I just don't think God negotiates. And sometimes we look and it's, we're in an unfair circumstance, and we're in a trial, and we don't get it. And God, I give you all of me, but I don't sense that you're giving me all of you. And you know what? I'll come to you as a last resort, but I won't be desperate. And I think our limitation is our lack of desperation. Do me a favor, just as we close, just bow your heads. Wednesday night, we asked people in the room at the prayer meeting just to stand up if they were in a difficult season. I'm not going to do that to you um, right now. But I would wonder if there's someone in this room who says, Lord, I'm really desperate for you right now. I find myself in a season, in a trial, in a difficult relationship, battling an addiction. Maybe it's from last week's message. You say, I'm still gripped by fear. I'm still gripped by anxiety. I'm still struggling in these areas. And God, I need you to show up in a life transformation, stirring way. I need you to, I need a miracle. I need you to intervene. And again, i just like you to test your heart. Are you desperate for God? It is easy to be desperate for the things of God. It is easy to be desperate for the things that God can give us or do for us. I just don't believe he's a negotiator and I don't believe he's fooled. He says, I want you to be desperate for me. And the question rings throughout this sermon. Are you really a follower of Jesus Christ or are you just going through the motions? Is this about perceptions your ultimate desire me we've seen God move in many lives I just don't think he's fooled and I think the prayer of our hearts needs to be God teach us once again to be desperate for you let's pray father I thank you for your word and uh, this morning we looked at passage a passage that has a lot of familiar phrases And my prayer would be that we would be convicted anew. Father, we confess that being a believer in this world is difficult. Sometimes we don't know when to speak and when to shut up and we don't know when to give grace or when to push truth. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom. We ask that our hearts would be for the gospel, to see people transformed. And sometimes that's gonna be hard truth and sometimes that's gonna be grace. Father, Give us the wisdom to know the difference. But Father, above all things, teach us to be desperate. For you, it's in your great name we pray. Amen.